AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Wednesday, February 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez from the Daily Dive podcast in Los Angeles, and this is Reopening America. As cases were soaring last year, the government bought millions of dollars of rapid COVID tests and distributed them to states. Now, we're finding out that millions of these tests have gone unused. One area of concern is that many of these tests are also reaching their six-month expiration dates. States have cited accuracy concerns and also other challenges such as training and demand for not using them. Sarah Kraus reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how millions of rapid tests have remained unused. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. As cases were soaring at the end of last year, the Trump administration sent out tens of millions of rapid response COVID tests out to, uh, out to states. And now we're seeing that a lot of these tests haven't been used. You know, I think it was about 32 million have not been used, totaling maybe about $160 million dollars. You know, we want to use all the resources we can, obviously, but this kind of seems to have gone very underused. And there's a few different reasons, accuracy concerns, things like that. But Sarah, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with these unused rapid response tests. So as you say, the federal government placed a large order of rapid antigen tests towards the end of last year and distributed them through January of this year. And the intent of those tests was to be able to quickly diagnose infected individuals and sort of start the contact tracing process early and help them be able to isolate. And the idea behind this purchase was, you know, they could be used in schools or jails or nursing homes in settings where there can be outbreaks and where there are people gathering by virtue of the type of establishment that it is. And what we found when we checked in with all 50 states was, you know, of the states that responded, there were a sizable number of tests that had gone unused for a variety of different reasons. Some of that was concerns over accuracy, that these are tests that aren't quite as accurate as lab-based tests. 
you know, at the same time, these are tests that are good at picking up infectious individuals. So those most likely to spread it. So there was sort of a, a debate as to whether these were the right tools to use relative to lab-based tests, you know, as well as other sort of regulatory type hurdles, like getting regulatory waivers to be able to use them in settings like schools or jails, places where you wouldn't necessarily be running, you know, a diagnostic test in the past, right. as well as just how to report the results. One of the big problems with this, and obviously, you know, the rollout has been happening for months, so it's not with all the tests, but some of them may be approaching a six-month expiration date. So if they don't get used, they might be useless, right? How does that part of it work? Some of the earliest tests that were sent out are coming up on their six-month expiration date. Now, there's efforts to sort of extend that and see, you know, if that shelf life can go beyond that six-month period because, you know, we don't want these to be wasted. But yes, it is the case that some of the earliest tests sent out are coming up against that initial expiration date. Most of these tests are the tests developed by Abbott Labs. I think they're called Binax now, and they cost about $5 each. So tell us about the purchase that we made on these. So these were some of the earliest rapid tests. And when I say rapid, I mean you get your results in about 15 minutes. Um, and these tests, the Binax Now test that the federal government purchased, they cost about $5. They're roughly the size of a credit card. So you don't need a lot of equipment or machinery to process a cartridge or a test. The sort of appeal of them was that they were these sort of easy to distribute, easy to use type tests. You know, they had to be administered by medical professionals, you know, but they were sort of straightforward and a way to get really quick answers. And even still, it's the largest federal government bulk purchase of COVID-19 tests to date. So HHS spent about $760 million to buy 150 million tests. And then they gave them out to the states and gave pretty wide latitude with how states wanted to use them. And that's part of what we discovered in our reporting became a challenge is states had different ideas of how valuable these tests were and were not or how appropriate they were to use in different settings. And at the same time, they were battling sort of high case counts. And so there was a concern about like in some places branching beyond the known quantity that is the lab-based test to create workflows around using these rapid tests. And part of that comes into, you know, how do you report the results of this? Because labs have sort of built in infrastructure to do that. With these rapid tests, states had to create sort of a reporting system right. to notify public health authorities of what they detected. Yeah, some of the states, I guess, said that the demand wasn't necessarily there for these type of tests, just because they had such robust testing infrastructure in other places, you know, maybe some of these kind of mass testing sites, just, you know, the way that they had developed those other systems. So they maybe they didn't need these as much. And you know, not all is lost. There are a lot of states that distributed the majority of these tests. Some states wanted to have like a backup just in case there were more outbreaks, which, you know, these kind of are a little more helpful in. But as you mentioned, some of these other hurdles, you know, let's say for schools, you know, it took a lot of training to get these parts set up. So it was just difficult to roll these out everywhere. Public health experts say they are best used regularly on the same population, you know, so like a one-off test of someone who doesn't have symptoms likely is not the best application of this type of test. Um, but the pitch at the time or the idea at the time was use these for broad, regular screening because we're just trying to weed out the people that are most likely to infect others. So that was the rationale behind this. But the reality of putting these tests to work and putting them to work quickly at a time when public health authorities are strained and dealing with record case counts and preparing for for vaccines, there ended up being a lot more sort of logistical hurdles and sort of other fires to deal with along the way that got in the way of some of this rollout. You mentioned it a, a bit ago, you know, the accuracy of these tests was a concern, but they do well in detecting people that do have uh, high viral lows and are probably very contagious. I think at that point, Abbott Labs said their tests were about 95% accurate or so, but it was a lot more difficult when it comes to people that were asymptomatic. 
these tests are, you know, some epidemiologists describe them as contagiousness tests, you know, so there is value in using them to quickly detect people who are infected and then quickly begin the contact tracing process. And, you know, as I I talked to a current HHS official who oversees the U.S. testing efforts now, and they are investing in other types of testing and other ways to scale up the U.S.'s testing infrastructure. But his point is, you know, public health is about trying to balance imperfect solutions so that we can control the pandemic. So is this the most accurate test in the world? No. Does it give you the information that you need to quickly address the most problematic cases? Yes. You know, so there's this push-pull And I think that's what you see playing out in the states across the country that we're grappling with how best to use these and where to use them. Any states that you might have seen that have a really big number of unused tests? Yeah, we, we mentioned in the story, California, about half of their 11.9 million tests had been used. Other states, Illinois, Michigan, uh, New York, those are all states where there were a million or more tests. Now, obviously, that's in each state relative to the proportion of tests they got. But yes, there were some states that really did still have a million or more tests to deploy, as you mentioned earlier, some on purpose where they wanted to have them in case of an emergency, but others where those accuracy concerns or the logistical concerns associated with using them got in the way still a valuable resource. Hopefully, you know, they get used before certain expiration dates. And if we can hold them on for these emergency cases, that's great. So good reporting and and monitoring on on our inventory of all of that. Sarah Krause, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this has been Reopening America. Don't forget that for today's big news stories, you can check me out on the Daily Dive podcast every Monday through Friday. So follow us on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcast. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.